It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing investment and financial planning advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Why not call Doug, Linda, and Deborah right now at 919-860-9783 with your financial planning questions. That's 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. And we are the Lewis family, ready to answer your questions tonight. This is Linda Lewis, and thank you for joining us on Money Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF. And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Well, Lynn, uh, what's new in the area of investment planning? Well, Doug, you know, many of our listeners that have called in want to know, how do I know which investments to choose? Good question, Lynn. Real good question. You know, a certified financial planner can first help you determine your current financial situation and your personal goals. What do you want your investments to achieve, for example? Are you investing for retirement or college education? Or do you want to raise capital to start a business? And people generally are concerned about their age, uh, their net worth, what's your tax bracket, and what goals will determine what types of investments you should be in. Right, Doug? Yeah, those goals in mind help your financial planner help you to prepare an investment policy statement, which is really crucial. Well, Doug, what exactly is an investment policy statement? An investment policy statement, Lynn, is your investment roadmap. It keeps you steady through good times and bad. It can help you quickly eliminate investment ideas that just don't fit, saving both time and costly mistakes. And it can also provide you with realistic expectations and a way to monitor the actual performance of your investments. Now, that policy statement should outline a number of things in it. And some of those include your investment goals, right, Doug? And the minimum level of return that you need so that you can achieve those goals. Those are important to be in the policy statement, along with what types of investments you will and will not include and what portion of the total portfolio each investment will comprise. And also, how long the assets will be in the portfolio and the anticipated inflation rate as well as the tax bracket assumptions, right? Once the investment policy is in place, then it's time and only then is it time to construct an investment portfolio, Lynn. Well, Doug, what exactly is an investment portfolio? You know, it's a funny thing, Lynn, that you would ask that question because you'd think everybody knows what an investment portfolio is, but I would say 80% of the people that I meet don't know what an investment portfolio is. And what it really is, is the combination of more than one investment asset, such as stocks or bonds, cash, real estate, precious metals, international investments. And how you and your financial planner construct this portfolio is important because different types of investments do better in different economic conditions. And Doug, what would you say about diversifying? Well, by diversifying your investments in a portfolio, you are more likely to reduce the volatility, which is a fancy word for risk, and also increase your potential return. Well, Doug, what about percentages? What kind of percentages? Percentages of return? That's hard to predict, Lynn. You can't do that. You can only look backwards. You can look backwards and see what percentage returns have happened over time uh, in different categories. But research does indicate that over 90% of a portfolio's performance is attributable not to the percentage returns, but to the selection and balancing of the different asset classes. I've read that a a mere 5% is attributable to the selection of specific funds, but only 1% to luck. Yeah, 5% is, is virtually nothing. Most of the time, what makes a portfolio work or not work is not the hot investment, but it's the way that you've balanced it. And that's where the certified financial planner helps you design this portfolio with the correct asset classes for you. Doug, you know, some people have raised the question, why don't I just select today's hottest investments? What do you think about this? 
Well, we hear it all the time, Lynn. Today's hottest investments, however, are oftentimes tomorrow's coldest turkeys. You know, you got to avoid the fads and the fancies. Invest for the long term because too often people randomly pick out investments as if they're pieces of a puzzle. They'll choose a hot mutual fund they read about in a personal finance magazine or buy a piece of real estate that some cousin recommended. How many times I have heard that story over and over again. And the problem is that people don't know where the pieces go because they don't have their whole investment uh, picture in front of them. And quite possibly the pieces belong to different puzzles. So therefore, they're inappropriate for a person's portfolio. Correct? Yeah, individual investments should reflect the guidelines established in the policy statement. Now, if you've had a financial plan produced, it should have a policy statement in it. Our number in Raleigh is 8727000. That's USA 7000. But in either case, the policy statement should reflect or the investments in the portfolio should reflect what's in the policy statement. Well, Doug, other listeners wonder, should I buy individual stocks or bonds or mutual funds? And a lot of people have questions about what should I be in, particularly if they're, if they've been in CDs or if they've inherited money and they want to know what should I do with this money? It really depends upon a lot of factors, but one of them is your risk tolerance. And another is the amount of money you have available to invest. And, of course, the time and the interest you and your advisor have to study, to monitor your investments, and consider the advantages and disadvantages of each, depending on your own needs and circumstances. Well, Doug, some of our listeners also want to know, should I consider investing overseas? Foreign stocks and foreign bonds are more volatile, but they oftentimes perform better when the U.S. market performs poorly, and this you can find a way to reduce the overall risk of your portfolio. You know, Doug, I've read that with many international mutual funds available, it's relatively easy to purchase a part of the rest of the world if you and your advisor find such uh, an investment appropriate. Yeah, that's a a given, Lynn. The point is that the capitalization around the world, the investment opportunities around the world are out there far and far beyond the United States. And if you're going to go ahead and participate in wealth accumulation, you need to expose yourself to international investing. It's a good way to balance a portfolio on the one hand, because world markets don't move in perfect harmony. Uh, As one market goes up, another goes down and so forth. And there are financial planners that are saying with the globalization and the global village that we're moving into, you should have as much as 60% of your portfolio with some sort of foreign or worldwide exposure. People also have questions about real estate and gold and oil and gas. What do you think about those? Well, those are asset classes, Lynn, and they're, uh, they have a place. Some of them have a place in some investment portfolios. But on the other hand, uh, not all portfolios should have all classes. Hard assets like real estate and, and oil and gas, we put in different portfolios. Precious metals, I don't have a great love for. Unlike direct, uh, indirect investments like stocks and bonds, many of these other types, however, can be purchased through direct participation like limited partnerships. And as oh. a result, they offer unique advantages and disadvantages, uh, considering things like liquidity and taxes. Some of these can give big tax advantages. What's the best way to go about investing? Well, there's no one preferred way, but a good way is dollar cost averaging if you've got money coming in over a regular basis. Actually, there's a wonderful book that I like, Linda, called The Wealthy Barber, and it makes a strong case for accumulating wealth on a regular basis, month by month by month, uh, if that's the way your money comes to you. Uh, Then there are other ways to consider with regard to lump sums and trust and so forth, but in the dollar cost averaging methodology, What you're doing there is you're trying to keep yourself from timing the market and letting time, not timing, do the work for you. Then by diversifying and investing regularly, you're able to more likely earn a reasonable return since some investment markets over time rise in value and others go down in value, but most of them will rise in value. Now, a very serious question here. How does one avoid investment scams? You know, Linda, it's a sad thing, but if you've been in this business as long as I have, you've seen the most amazing number of scams out there, and you're amazed at the greater fool theory. You know what the greater fool theory is? No. There's always a greater fool. There's always a greater fool. I mean, it's unbelievable. The wise people that I've spoken to, the wealthy people who have swallowed hook, line, and sinker, 
They, oh yeah, they buy those uh, the the pitch on the buying coins. Coins and gold, and what was that offshore trust that guy called you about? You remember that one? Yeah. How to cheat the United States out of all their taxes because by a, a constitutional constitutional what, trust? Wasn't that what it was called? The constitutional trust and oh, everything. Man. And then the cellular telephone deals and the te- I mean, one after the other. One investment rule is if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And the second rule is mm-hmm. never invest dollars as a result of a telephone pitch. The majority of investment scams are boiler room telephone operations. You should always demand a detailed prospectus and other financial offering materials before making any decision. You should refuse any buy now sales pitches and you should be working with a financial advisor, in my opinion. What are some common investment mistakes that people make, Doug? Let's, let's review those very quickly. Well, mistakes, uh, I guess the biggest mistake is they don't start soon enough. You know, an investment of $100 a month when you're 25 years old, if it grows at 8% and you reinvest everything, is going to be over a, th- a third of a million dollars by retirement age. The second in, uh, mistake I guess people make is they don't develop any plan, any investment plan. And they don't diversify their investments. Big problem. You remember that Putting one? all your eggs in one basket? <laughs> I would tell you, as soon as somebody finds something they like, Everything goes in. Everything goes in. Like the fellow that came to see you recently with $2 million, that one stock. Right. And people often have unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations. Big problem. To earn higher returns, you usually have to take more risk. Lower risk usually means a lower return. And most people don't invest for the long term. And Basically, what happens, you can reduce the risk of more volatile investments such as stocks, correct? If you do invest for the long term, that's exactly right. And another mistake people make is they don't take the responsibility for their own investments. They don't educate themselves about their investments, and they fail to keep a close eye on their investments. I get more people that call me and say, well, I've got this. I've got this retirement plan, but I'm not sure what it is or what's in it. If your financial planner or your investment advisor isn't willing to explain the fundamentals of investing and the advantages and disadvantages of a specific investment you're considering, you should not work with that advisor. And many people fail to take full advantage of their 401k plans, their IRAs, or any other tax advantage saving plans. Those are the primary uh, mistakes people make, Lynn. If you have any further questions or if we can be of any further assistance, um, you can call our office at 8727000 in the Raleigh area, and we'll be happy to do what we can to assist you. John, this is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. How can I help you this evening? Yes, I have a question. My wife's uh, mother has died, and uh, she had left a couple small insurance policies uh, that will come to my wife. And I was wondering, if do I have a tax responsibility for that inheritance? Well, what's your, well you mean, does your wife... Well, Your wife is the beneficiary in the policies? Yes. My father-in-law died, father-in-law died about seven years ago and left everything to my wife. And his his wife went into a nursing home and has been in the home since. And uh, she died about a month ago and had a couple of very small policies. But I wasn't sure what my tax responsibilities was when we received the money from the policies. Let's back up just for a second. I'm, okay. not, cl- I'm not clear on, on how your father-in-law got in the picture. Uh, well, he he died and left all his money to my wife. Uh, he died and left everything to your wife. Right. And that was when? Seven years ago. Seven years ago. So that's not part of the picture now. No, but but since then, the mother, my mother-in-law has been in a home and for the last seven years and died a month ago and had a couple small insurance policies like $1,000 to $1,000 policies. And I wasn't sure if we received the $2,000, do we have a tax responsibility on receiving that inheritance on that policy? No, you don't. Insurance, no, insurance proceeds are not taxable. They are not the, taxable. No, not the proceeds. What is taxable is the amount of the proceeds in the estate tax computation of the dying one. They are part of the estate tax computation. But we paid all the estate taxes earlier. But I'm not sure that was part of the estate tax. Now, wait a second. You paid the estate taxes. Of my father-in-law. Yeah, but but your father-in-law is not the one that died. Your mother-in-law died. Yeah, she has no estate. Well, she had the, whatever the value of the, whatever she owned at her death is her estate. Okay. And she, and and, and if she owned those insurance policies, then, then that, then that's part of her estate. Right. 
So I do have a tax responsibility for those. You don't have a tax responsibility at all. The question is, does she, does her estate, you see what I'm saying? Yes. Her estate files an estate tax return. The beneficiary who receives insurance proceeds does not pay taxes on insurance benefits that they receive from someone's life insurance policy. But when that person who died, when their estate, their executor files the estate tax return, okay, they must include in that estate value the, the total value of all insurance policies that they owned I got at the time of their death. And if you need any more information, you can call us at the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. Okay, I appreciate that. Thank you for calling, you. John. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye now. Doug, as far as giving, what does a charitable trust do? Well, I think the best way to understand how the trust works to uh, not share your wealth as much as enhance the total wealth position, how you can help yourself, your community, and your family. And you don't have to be a Ted Turner to really be able to do some good, even helping yourself do good. And you have to think of the trust in the form of six players. I like to call them players. There are six players in a charitable trust scenario. Okay. The first player is the donor. Right. Now, the donor is the person who sets up the trust and he gives something into the trust. Uh, if it's a business owner, he might give his stock into the trust. If it's a, uh, a person who has a stock portfolio, it might be he. It, it might be someone who inherited a farm. Right. But is not going to do farming. Exactly. Uh, but the donor is the one who sets up the trust. And then he creates this trust and he names a trustee. And he gives something from himself to the trustee. So the trustee is a very important player. I like to have the trust set up so the client is his own trustee. Set up a trust where the client is his own trustee. Right. A self-trusted trust. Well, uh, where he he identifies himself as the donor, but also himself as the trustee. Then he gives from himself to himself, so to speak. Now, the third player after the trustee is called the income beneficiary. That's the person that the trustee pays. All right. The income beneficiary. And the fourth player is the charitable or the nonprofit beneficiary. And that's the person or the party that or the nonprofit that's going to get what's left after everybody dies and is gone. Is that what's known as the remainderman? Yes, they get the remainder of what's in the trust after the trust is over. And usually I like to run them after both people have passed away, the husband and the wife. Now, the income beneficiary can also be the same person as the donor and as the trustee. But we have to be very careful when we do it this way because we want to make sure that there is no self-dealing. But if you do it this way, the trustee again then gets to sell everything he gave that the donor gave to the trust and pay no capital gains tax and then reinvest the money in mutual funds and other normal investments. So it can be very powerful if you get the parties straightened out. And what about the administrator? The administrator is an important role. The administrator is the party that files the tax returns and keeps track to show the IRS that there's no hanky-panky. The sixth layer is the investment advisor. Exactly. That's the one that's going to invest all the money after you've sold everything. You want both the administrator and the investment advisor to be under employment by the trustee. To any of our listeners, if you have a question or if you would like to receive our introductory packet of information, I'll be happy to send it to you. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That is USA 7000. Get a notebook and start jotting down some of those questions and work with a financial planner. Well, Linda, what's new in the world of investment planning? Well, Doug, a lot of people that have called in, you know, listeners that have called in at the office, have questions about asset allocation. And I think I may have said earlier that a lot of these people have done a wonderful job of accumulating but now they're concerned about, do I have it in the right vehicle? And I'm not making enough income off of my CDs. Or I had one gentleman, he had, what, a 280000 in CDs coming due. But he needed more income to pay for nursing home costs for his spouse. Wow. So anyway, you know, that was one of his major questions. What can I do to increase the income? Because the expense of paying for the nursing home isn't going to go away. The question you're asking is the one of asset allocation. 
and an asset allocation is a very confused issue. Asset allocation, however, in my opinion, is the most important issue in investment planning. And if a person does not have an asset allocation model that they are following, if they do not have an asset allocation philosophy, or if they do not have a planner who has an asset allocation philosophy and model they're following, then they've got real problems. I guess the big question that I always ask people when I look at their portfolio, say, well, what are you trying to achieve? And, and they say, well, I, I'm very conservative and so forth. And I look, and it reminds me of a person that's trying to be lukewarm by keeping one foot in a bucket of ice water and one foot in a bucket of, of uh, boiling water, trying to, to be you know, lukewarm. They have no idea of what they're doing. So let's start at the basics, and let's go over the three methods of asset allocation that are practiced out there today. But first, why don't you give our listeners the numbers that they can call during the week to speak to you, and we can go over this more in depth with their personal situation. The numbers to call during the week at the office are area code 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And if after listening to the show, if there's some question that's been on your mind that you need an answer about, I'll be happy to do what I can to help you and just call the office. All right. Three methods are practiced today. First method is the single investment, safest investment method. And this is the philosophy that says, let's find the safest investment that we can, the safest type of investment, and put all of our money in it, such as CDs or such as municipal bonds, such as treasuries, such as guaranteed annuities. Okay. That's the single investment safest method type. So looking at the single investment safest type. That's the first method that's practiced. I do not like this method. Why not? Putting all your eggs in one basket? Well, and, and that's, that, that's good, Lynn. But the reason I don't is I don't know what's the safest investment until it's gone wrong. I can tell you a horror story of every one of those safest investments. Everything looks safe when you go into it, but don't know until it's failed what was wrong. Right. The second method is the one of diversification. Diversification using a weighting, that's W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, giving different weight. The diversification method using the weighting of risk, putting more money in the so-called low-risk investments and less money in the high-risk investments, trying to weight your risk. I do not like this method, even though it's a method of diversification by not putting all your eggs in any one basket. I don't like this method either. Why don't you like it? Because, again, we're trying to allocate what is high risk and what is low risk. And, again, I don't know until something goes wrong. So the things we put the most money into might have been the exact high risk ones. And the ones we put the least money into might have been the low risk. And we might turn out all wrong. The third method is a diversification method also. And this is the uniform unit size method of diversification. And that's the method I like. And in this method here, we give equal weight of risk to each investment, and we set a unit size. For example, you mentioned a $200,000 portfolio. Right away, my mind thinks $200,000, $20,000 unit size. Ten of them, right? Ten investments, $20,000 each, and that will spread the risk equally. We won't try and guess which one is going to do better, which is going to be worse. So what you're doing, again, is spreading your risk. But by picking a uniform unit size. Now, the next thing I want is pools. I prefer not ten individual investments, I would prefer 10 pools of investments by using the uniform unit size method of asset allocation and picking pooled investments. We are spreading our risk not over 10, but over hundreds of investments. And we're really spreading our money over 10 different managers. And this is the method that I prefer. Uniform unit size method of asset allocation. So get your situation analyzed. Work with a financial planner. If you have any other questions, do give us a call at the office. The number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Gene, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you? Yeah, I have a business that I'm fixing to sell, and it's going to bring me $500,000. All right. And I don't owe anything on the business. And what could I do to avoid some of the taxes? Well, let me get a few of the facts because it's a, it's um it's a more and more common problem I'm hearing about these days. You're selling the business for five hundred thousand dollars. How old are you? Forty. You're forty years old, uh-huh. married or single? Married. Married. Any other income coming to you other than this business? Is your uh, wife working? No. Uh-huh. Okay. This is the only source of your income? No, I do have another source. All right, you've got another source of income. What's right. the income from, how much is the income from the other source? Uh, about 60 a year. 
about sixty a year. Uh-huh. Do you know what your living expenses are? Yeah. How much is that? Uh, about twenty five a month. Twenty five hundred. All right, so about 30000 a year are your expenses, uh-huh. so the other income supports you and probably pays it in the end, pays the taxes also. Exactly. All right, now the business you've got, how is it structured? Is it a sole proprietorship or no, cor- it's a corporation? All right, what kind of corporation? Uh, I have no idea. It's been incorporated for about 10 years, and I just had my lawyer. Probably right. uh, S Corporation. All right, well, there are a couple of things to realize here. First of all, uh, is there anything in writing between the person who wants to buy the business and you at the present time? No. All right. That's very important. The second thing is, uh, if it is a corporation, you are facing two types of taxes. Right. The first type of tax uh, will take maybe, let's say, 35 per- Do you know what the basis in your bill- business is? The what? The cost basis. How much did you originally invest to get it started? Right. Yeah, I know all that. How much is that? Uh, probably it's got about 125 cost. All right. If it's got 125,000 dollar cost basis, let's see. What we have here 125,000 off of your 500,000. You got a 375,000 dollar times 34 percent. So you first you're going to cost you 127,500 on the first round of taxes, and then it'll probably cost you. On the 375 times 33. All right. Probably going to cost you about 250000 or more in taxes. Right. Now, you can, if, if your buyer is willing to buy the, the if make a stock purchase, uh-huh. then you can sell it and avoid all of the taxes. Okay. If the buyer is willing, is unwilling to do that, but only will make an asset sale, uh-huh. then we can go ahead and save approximately, well, it depends, uh, but we can probably, you can save all of the taxes, but you're going to have to give him a discounted price below the 500 to equal what he might be looking for in depreciation on the, on the assets. Uh-huh. So, best case is, the wonderful case is, if you can make it a stock sale, here's the way it happens. We set up a charitable remainder trust. Charitable remainder trust is a vehicle in which you design a trust document with the help of a certified financial planner, and you transfer the stock that you own. By the way, is it owned by you or just you? just me only. Not your wife. Right, All right. You put the stock into this charitable trust. Right. You then identify yourself as the trustee of this trust. Right. You set up the trust so that it will pay all of the income generated in this trust for the rest of your life and the rest of your wife's life Uh back to you and your wife. Right. Now, but in the trust document, you also say that after the two of you have died, Uh then what's left in this trust will go to some charitable institution or charitable family foundation uh, in the name of yourself and your family. Now, in doing that, you can have the trust sell the business for the entire $500,000. And now, if we set up the trust to pay you and your wife, all of the income. Now there's a $500,000 lump of cash that needs to be invested. Mm-hmm. You're going to be the trustee, so you're going to control that money. You're going to invest that money. Suppose I want to pay my house off. Well, if you want to pay your house off, we have to pay it off. How much is, how much is owed on the house? Uh, one twenty. All right. To pay off the $125,000, uh-huh. you want to do it in as the money comes out of the charitable trust. Okay. Because we have here a concept of a split interest gift. So the money always stays in the trust. The original 500000 would stay in the trust. Well, yes and no. Okay. Uh, technically, on paper, yes. Uh-huh. However, over your lifetime, we may pull out 2 or $3 million uh-huh. to you. Right. All the trust document has to say is what's left in the trust at y'all's death right. goes to a charity. I see. The key is the trustee. Uh-huh. The trustee is the key player in this whole arena. Uh-huh. That's why you want to make sure that you don't do certain things. Number one, you don't want to let a bank be a trustee. Right. You don't want to let 
uh, an institution be a trustee, you want to be the trustee because you're going to be ultimately ending up paying yourself income for the rest of your life. Right. Uh, okay. the for one, instance, if I wanted to take $100,000 out to do something with, would I be allowed to do that as a trustee? Yes and no. Okay. If you can justify that it's accumulated 100000 income. For example, that's why I asked you your income and your expenses. Uh-huh. If we go ahead and think of this now as a half-million-dollar savings account like an IRA. Right. All right, you've dumped it in there, and you've just saved a quarter million dollars of taxes. Uh-huh. So now you've got a half million dollars growing in there. And by that's the way... no longer in your estate. Well, that's, that's true also. We've avoided all the estate taxes. A very good point, Linda. So, but it's, and it's no longer in his estate anymore. Right. right. But it's also growing tax-deferred. Right. Now, you can let that thing, let's say it grows uh, at a 12% rate, for example, over the next 10 years. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. It's now worth... A million uh, and a half. Uh-huh. You are only 50 years old. Right. If this were a retirement plan, you couldn't take any money out of this uh-huh. without having a 10% penalty. Right. But because you set up the trust document to where it's supposed to be paying you income every year, and you have stru- structured it in such a way that it hasn't paid you, right. it now owes you, so to speak, all of the income over the past 10 years. So you've really got almost a million dollars that if you chose to, you could suck out of there. Right. And the half million is still there. Right. However, you wouldn't want to take the million out at one time. Right. Because it would be taxable at that time. I see. Okay. But what you've done is you've set up a retirement plan that you can take out as much as you want up to, you know, I mean, as early as you want, rather. Right. I see. You can also leave it there after age 70 and a half so that you don't have the 70 and a half age rules that you would in a retirement plan. If they don't want to do the stock, buy the stock, they just want to buy me outright, that's the end of it. No, it's not the end of it. Okay. It's not the end of it at all. But we have to go ahead and be more sophisticated. Uh-huh. Uh, if they only want to buy the assets, uh-huh. see, they can't buy you out. They right. can. They can either, if they buy you out, they're buying the stock. Uh-huh. What about a royalty? Uh, can they pay me, say, if they wanted to open another store like this in another state, uh-huh. could they pay me a royalty? I was told, someone told me that they could pay you a royalty, and that wouldn't be taxable. Well, I mean, you, no, you're not going to avoid the taxes. Okay. You're going you're to, you, you, the, if, if they're not going to buy the business, buy the stock, buy the assets, uh-huh. and, uh, then you're going to be paid an ongoing income stream. But that's not what you want. You want the lump. Right. Whoever controls the big hunk, uh-huh. you want the whole half a million, right? Exactly. Now, the worst case is if they will not take the stock, but uh-huh. they'll only take the assets, uh-huh. then what you and I or you and a financial planner do is you sit down and you go through the numbers uh-huh. and, you, and you figure out how much is it that they are expecting to benefit by getting the assets. Right. And the main thing they're looking for there is depreciation. Uh-huh. Well, we can compute that and discount it back to Fed to present value. And let's say maybe let's say maybe it's got a fifty thousand dollar value for them. Uh-huh. So we drop the sale price to four hundred uh, four hundred fifty thousand uh-huh. and sell them the stock for four hundred fifty thousand because they say that if they bought it the other way, they would have gained fifty thousand uh, dollars. All right. They, well, I would love to. I've got to run, but I would love to set up something maybe to meet with you in a few weeks, then, if that's possible. Yes, sir. Um. You can call us in Raleigh, Gene, at 8727000. Okay. That's our office number. Okay. And if you'll call, then I'll be happy to send you some information. We can discuss this further. Well, I appreciate you taking All time right. to talk to us. And thank you so much thank for calling. You. Bye-bye. Okay. Goodbye. Well, Doug, there are a lot of people out there that want to know if they have a lump sum of money, should they invest it at one time or should they space it in little by little? Sometimes the market goes down and sometimes it goes up. And so if you got $100,000, for example, to invest, if you send it in at one time and the market drops afterwards, you say, golly day, why didn't I send it? Why didn't I wait and get it in when it was low? I would have had more invested. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if we send it in little by little by little, which is what we call dollar cost averaging, let's say 10000 a month over 10 months, then hopefully some of it will go in on a month when it drops. And then when it goes back up again, it, it'll go in and you'll buy more shares that way. And That's the traditional view, and I still thoroughly agree with the philosophy of dollar cost averaging, except for the fact that there is another risk that a lot of people and financial advisors are recognizing. And And what is that? If we think that 10 months from now, the market will be significantly higher than it is now, then for sure we would like to have gone in now. 
However, suppose that you are doing a pay-yourself-first investment plan with your excess money. Right. Then dollar cost average. That's exactly what should happen. Don't make the decision of when I'm going to invest in a good month or a bad month, but set up an automatic investment plan, which we call a pay-yourself-first plan, at the beginning of each month, and then, yes, because you don't have the choice of a lump then, and you'll probably do better this way than trying to accumulate the cash and then deciding when to go in. And if you'd like any further information, you can call me at the office, and the number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. Doug, I saw a headline about different names of mutual funds being confusing for investors. Exactly what does it mean? A lot of mutual funds are putting names to their funds, which tout a particular style of investing or a type of risk, which is not really indicative to the fund at all. They might have a fund with a name that makes it sound like it's a low-risk fund, whereas, in fact, it's actually a high-risk fund, and so on. Names can be just as deceptive, even when it comes to the investment objectives, uh, all kinds of, 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 of strategies of putting unreliable names on the funds. Investors can't help sleuthing through the wordplay, if not from the mutual fund itself, then you have to start looking at a, a whole bunch of different research outfits that track different stock-picking styles of mutual funds. The source that I like the best, Linda, is Morningstar. Right. Those are excellent reports. The Morningstar reports are an independent analytical service that every two weeks comes out with another uh, tracking of mutual funds and also their styles, what's new, who, which managers have left, and so on. You have to be very careful about just going by a name of a fund that you've heard of and thinking that the name tells you the amount of risk because you need to have some professional help evaluating the risk in the particular funds that you're getting into or you can get into serious trouble. By the way, if you want to go ahead and call in at the office during the week, it's 872-7000. Well, Doug, there's a lot of questions going on in the world of investment planning and some of this these questions are in regard to mutual funds. I don't know if everybody, but pretty much everybody that I know has been worrying lately about whether mutual funds are equipped to withstand the next stock market crash or bond collapse or anything they can worry about. Yeah, Deborah, you're, you're right on, on, you're spot on, actually. The Securities and Exchange Commission proposed a rule that would overhaul how mutual funds manage what they call liquidity risk or the potential that investors won't be able to cash out promptly at the prices they've been led to believe their mutual fund is worth. So the good news about this rule is that uh, it's likely going to go into effect next year. It's that it should make funds a little safer, a little more transparent, a little more equitable. That's the good news. Yeah. Now, the bad news is that the new regulations might well make fund managers even more um, uh, chicken hearted or scared uh, than they already are. Maybe more passive is a a better way to say that. I don't mind chicken hearted because (laughs) under the proposal, mutual funds would have to now estimate the number of days needed to sell each of their holdings at a price that doesn't materially affect the value of that asset immediately prior to the sale. Well, you know, think about that. If it's a U.S. Treasury in the mutual fund, well, no problem. You know you can get it sold for that price one, you know, that same day, one business day. But at the other end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. at the longest and least liquid end, you know, you might have some junk bonds. You might have some small stocks in emerging markets. It could be more than 30 calendar days to find a buyer to get rid of that. Yeah, the rule preserves an old SEC guideline that no fund should put more than 15% of its assets in securities that can't be sold within seven calendar days. Now, that's good, but what would be even better about all this is that fund investors will be able to compare across fund to fund. And this is what I really appreciated that this proposal, the percentage of assets that are in less liquid holdings would now be reported. They will also see that one fund categorizes a particular investment as more liquid than another does. 
What 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 bothers me <clears throat> is that if a fund is sold to you as what they call a liquid alternative, and we see this label now quite a bit, you, the investor, should ask yourself why the marketing department insists on emphasizing that word liquid. Yes, you should. Yeah, because chances are the broker trying to sell you the fund is trying to make underlying assets sound more readily marketable than they might be, especially in a crisis. Now, I have nothing against the world of alternatives. As a matter of fact, some alternatives are outstanding, right. but they should be accepted as illiquid investments. Think about that real is estate. True. Yeah, think about real estate investment trusts. REITs are outstanding investments sometimes, mm-hmm. but if they're sold as a liquid alternative, that's not that's that that is that's sort of dangerous putting a label on it. I personally think that the alternatives whether they be business development companies like BDCs or REITs or, or whatever they are, if they are alternatives, they should be sold as illiquid investments. I think that's what's so impressive about this news that, you know, came out um, within the last week or so is that, you know, yeah, you need to know as much as you can know as an investor and an advisor is going to know this information. Your financial planner is going to be reading and knowing what the differences are. So call us. Us, Lewis Financial Management, 919-872-7000, because this is what we do. Well, let's take Linwood's call. Hi, Linwood. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Well, I want to say, first of all, I thank you guys for what you're doing. Well, you're certainly welcome, Linwood. Uh, I tell you what it is. I'm in my mid-40s, and I'm interested. I live in uh, one town, and I spent a lot of time in, the, in another town. And rather than renting, I was going to buy a home, mm-hmm. and I have a VA loan that's available to me, but I was interested, in, since I am in my 40s, I was interested in paying a larger down payment versus using a VA loan so that I could have smaller payments, and at the same time, this home could be used later as an investment towards Social Security. What do you think? What's your income right now, Linwood? Uh, around uh, 70000 Are you making 70000 Right. And what are your, li- are you married or single? Married. You're married, children at home or gone? Uh, gone. Okay, your wife working or single? I mean, working or non-working? She works. <laughs> I hope your wife's not single. No, I okay. do. All right. So we've got two incomes. And what's her income? My wife's income is around uh, 40. All right. So you've got two incomes, no children at home, 110000 combined income. Yes, they're about. And what kind of investment portfolio have you accumulated so far? I have some stock, uh, not as aggressive as I would like to. How much do you have in, in stocks? Uh, roughly 30. About 30000 in right. stocks. Anything in mutual funds? Yes, about half that. About another 15000 in mutual Correct. funds. Correct. Okay. Uh, what else do you have in the way of investments besides that? Well, fort- we have invested in uh, several properties. All right. Real estate. Anything else? Uh, retirement plans. My wife and I, of course, have them on our jobs. All right. And uh, are they like 401ks that, yes, are, that yeah. you're vested in? Yes. Do you know about how much they, you've got there? Uh, I think my wife would probably have about, uh, about 75000 all right. And I would say kind of a little less, maybe 50. All right. Actually, you're looking pretty good for mid-40s, Linwood, and I like the fact that you're going out on the home and you're not looking at buying yourself a super expensive a home for your income and so forth. Your question was, should you make a low or, or, or larger down payment? Right. I have uh, VA available. Yeah. I'll tell you what I would do. Uh, I would go in and use the VA. That's a 5% down payment. <laughs> okay. All right. And I'll tell you why. Uh, because with a 5% down payment, you don't have to come up with much cash, right? Yeah. About four or $5,000. Right. That gets you into the house. And then the tax advantage that it will give you on the larger mortgage payment will help you. You see, if you've got 110000 combined income between the two of y'all and you don't have any other uh, deductions from children or exemptions, then you could use some tax uh, benefits. Okay. And you'll have a larger mortgage. Uh, interest deduction. It's not going to be a big mortgage expense to you. On $110,000 income, it's not going to hurt you at all. And you'll get a, uh, $1 for three back on your taxes. Okay. The phone number at the office is 919-872-7000. Uh-huh. Okay, I got it. And, uh, but I, I don't think that I would work. No, I think I'd stay with the VA loan. You would? Yep. But I, my main goal would be to get my living expenses matched up against my income and get the aggressively as possible into a pay-yourself-first plan going into a mutual fund family that, uh, you know, that you're comfortable with. 
You can hear from me tomorrow anyway. Thanks. All right. Thanks for calling, Linda. Take care now. Bye-bye. Have you seen the Lewis Financial Management website? It's easy to get to. DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. Well, you know, I think there's something else that I picked up in one article I read this week that was very interesting. It referenced a study, a study that more and more people are actually thinking about their long-term finances than they were a few years ago. And these are people who don't have financial advisors. And that was very encouraging to know that at least uh, people are thinking about things they never thought about. We started this show. Our goal was to educate the public to where they would start thinking about their future. And so now this uh, study that I saw actually says more and more people are thinking about it than they were even a few years ago. But that's only the good news. The bad news was that when they think about the future, 71% of those people are thinking about one year ahead, one year out. And that is not long-term planning at all. You know, it's, it's actually never been more important to plan for the long term. And procrastination is going to be costly, as always, for investors That's right. Governments are being forced to cut age-related benefits all the time, meaning that in the future, most people will not be able to rely on governmental support to the same extent that they have done in the past. So we have to be more financially self-reliant in retirement. If you're serious about reaching your big finance-enhancing financial objectives, you must think and plan with a perspective that's longer than 12 months. That's just short term in our world. You know, I agree with you, Debs um, and Doug. Um, people uh, that are thinking about just one year, it's not enough. You have to think about your future because time flies. And working with an advisor uh, will give you the comfort that they're, you know, holding your hand through different stages of your life, and especially if you have a crisis. You know, last week we lost a client. Right. Um, you know, a very, very dear couple, and um, it's, you know, then you, you're there to comfort the family and spend time uh, looking at what is and how how to address these issues, right? You, you bring up a really good point. I mean, when we make the promise that we'll be with you and your family till the end, you know, over this couple's life, we saw the first spouse pass away, and this is the second spouse, but we'd already been working with the adult child. So knowing that, you know, parents feel much more comforted knowing that even, even th- this passes on this wealth of information, as so too will it be the family wealth. For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And I do believe we have a caller. Marilyn, how can I help you? Yes, I want to know the difference in a durable power of attorney and a regular power of attorney. All right. Well, tell me a little bit about your situation. I'll see how I can relate it to you. Well, it's technically not my situation. I just had a form that asked for a durable power of attorney where I had already supplied a regular power of attorney. And I just why, wondered... yeah, why did you get the form? Is it, for, is it for a relative of yours? Yes, it was for a relative of mine. And uh, I just didn't know what, what the difference meant in a durable versus just a regular power of attorney. Well, very simply, a durable power of attorney, Marilyn, is one that endures beyond incompetency, and a uh, regular power of attorney does not endure beyond incompetency. Uh-huh. Uh, but beyond the definition, you can run into some serious problems where it may not be exa- at all what you're looking for. Who solicited the power of attorney? Uh, it was a brokerage account. Let me ask you, why did you have a power of attorney on file with them? It was for my aunt, and she's in a nursing home, and I take care of her things. Right. I suspected something like that might uh, might be the case. What you may find out is that a durable power of attorney may not work, and that's uh, and that that is a problem which a lot of people aren't aware of. So really, I should just consult my attorney and ask. Well, your attorney may not know the difference either. What you need to know is you need to know the difference between a durable power of attorney and the possibility of using what's called a revocable living trust. Mm-hmm. The revocable living trust eliminates the problems. Now, a durable power of attorney says that the power of attorney, if your aunt becomes incapacitated and unable to make decisions on her own, mm-hmm. is she still able to make decisions on no, her own? she's not, no. Well, then what they're concerned about is the 
ability to go beyond suppose it's challenge then mm-hmm. i and and i'm not sure that you can get that power of attorney to be made durable at this point right if she's not competent on it. Yeah, in other words, and they may be very nervous mm-hmm. that they don't have a power of attorney that would stand up mm-hmm. because if the present power of attorney does not say that it endures beyond incompetency, mm-hmm. then they may be concerned mm-hmm. that they got a toothless dog, that, mm-hmm. that they're putting themselves at risk because they're letting you operate with the power of attorney that is not valid. Now, I am not sure you would have to contact your attorney, but I would contact your attorney and find out if it's possible to move the assets into a revocable living trust now that you, after your aunt is incompetent. Mm -hmm. It may or may not be able to be done, but if it could be done, then you have bypassed the problems of dealing with the brokerage firm with power of attorney. Mm -hmm. Then you are the trustee. Mm -hmm. And if you're the trustee, then you're not operating as power of attorney for anyone. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So, that, a, so a power of attorney is best just for short-term uh, solutions if someone's in the hospital or just not able to pay bills or those sorts of things. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it's just more of a short-term solution? A power of attorney, there are different types of powers of attorney, but the power of attorney is for that period of time that specifies in the power. The brokerage firms and uh, a lot of people do want a power of attorney that is durable beyond incompetency. Mm-hmm. But my point is that in some cases, now the banks give you no problems generally. They will accept durable powers of attorney. Mm-hmm. And some of the brokerage firms will, but some of the mutual fund companies will not. Okay. And, uh, and, and we need to either find out ahead of time the investments that you're in mm-hmm. and see if they will accept durable powers of attorney. Or you need to build into your durable powers of attorney a way to keep validating that power of attorney that is still durable. Will the assets pass to you at her death, Marilyn? No, they will not. Oh, they will not. So you're just helping her take care of it so that she can uh, pay for her nursing home costs, etc. That's right. Well, if if you have any further questions or if we can be of any further assistance... Um, you can call our office at 8727000 in the Raleigh area, mm-hmm. and we'll be happy to do what we can to assist you. Right. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank Bye-bye. you very much for calling. Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week, and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Sunday at 605 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 WPTF.